but it's a thrill for us to be involved in this young adult retreat, especially since it's here in Wingham. It's a delight for us to get back here whenever we have the opportunity. And as is clear from Colin's remarks, uh, the kids, little kids I had in catechism then are young adults or have their own families, some of them. But uh, we're thrilled to have a part in the retreat this weekend. Thankful for all of you that were able to attend. Our theme text for the retreat is taken from the Sermon on the Mount, the passage that Colin read this evening, verse 21 from Matthew 6, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It stands to reason that in this sermon concerning the kingdom of heaven and its citizens, that the Lord Jesus would warn us about our attitude toward this world. The Lord Jesus says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. We all know what a treasure is. It's something that we value greatly, something we cherish, something that's very precious to us. And his warning concerns our attitude toward life in this world. Jesus is warning against a person confining his ambitions, his interests, his hopes to this life and to the things of this world. Money is often on the foreground. But from that viewpoint, those of us who have little money need this exhortation about not laying up treasures just as much as the rich. We all have potential treasures. Perhaps it's money. Perhaps it's our career, our education, our position. But whatever it is, it stops in this life and this world. Perhaps today we could well read this verse, Lay not up for yourselves pleasures upon earth. Pleasures. Social media, entertainment, sports, how easily these things can begin to dominate in our lives. Why this warning? For this reason, that moth and rust corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. There's an element of decay in everything earthly. They simply don't last, and therefore they're really not fully satisfying. And in addition, we soon begin to tire of them. We lose interest. We may enjoy them for a while, but that's why 
We're always inclined to be seeking something bigger, something better, something new, new styles, new models, new fashions, new thrills. Begins when we're very young as children, one thing after another. A new bike, a new skateboard, a motorcycle, a quad, a car, a boat, a snowmobile, whatever it might be. But as age advances, these things cease to really satisfy. For the fact about these things is that they inevitably perish, they can disappear so rapidly. Moth and rust corrupt, thieves break through and steal, Jesus tells us. Perhaps illness or business loss or financial hardships, finally death, threatens all these earthly things. But the spiritual danger involved in laying up treasures upon earth is much more serious Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For these things so easily take hold of us. And by nature we set our hearts upon them. And the treasures below become our goal in life. They captivate our thinking and our willing and our activity, our whole life. We would love these treasures. We might pretend like we only like them, but we love them. And so we face questions in this light. Jesus directs us. How is our eyesight? How do we look at things? Do we see all things with what the Lord Jesus calls the single eye? The eye of the spiritual person who sees things as they really are in the light of God's word. Or is our eye evil? Do we have double vision? Is it cloudy, blurry, tainted by certain lusts and desires? The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy concerning one of his former companions and co-workers. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. We can think of other examples of people who have allowed the love of money to control and ruin their lives. Think of Achan, who took of the forbidden things from Jericho. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in the days of the early church who lied to the apostles and to the Holy Spirit with regard to their money. Perhaps we've heard of those who have been swallowed up by the sin of gambling, lost everything, ruined their lives. We have to understand that in our day, we too can be influenced by, in very subtle ways, 
mammon can intrude and influence our lives. We must lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. Then our heart will be there. And if we are citizens of the kingdom, it must be. If our hearts have been touched by the power of the irresistible grace of God, we will be guided in the ways of righteousness and holiness. Our eye will be single toward the things that pertain to Christ, to the kingdom of heaven, to the glory of God. We will be spiritually minded more and more. Christ goes into the relationship that we must have to the things of this earth a little deeper. No man can serve two masters, for he cannot serve God and mammon. That's a soul-searching truth. Can't have it both ways. And we'd like to look at that truth for a few minutes this evening, especially from the perspective of Moses. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, familiar chapter, the so-called heroes of faith. And I'd like to read verses 24 through 26. Those three verses, Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. I'd like to speak this evening on the theme, Treasuring Christ Above All Things in Times of Suffering, Affliction, Persecution. And we would notice, first of all, the choice. Secondly, the suffering. And finally, the reward. The verses I read in Hebrews 11 speak of the choice of Moses by faith. And the scriptures often speak of a choice. Of a choice of man in general. Of a choice of the people that belong to the church in the midst of this world. Particularly the choice of the elect, the true people of God. Of course, God himself chooses, and he sovereignly chooses his people unto everlasting life. But man, as a rational, moral creature, a thinking, willing creature, also chooses. And by nature, of course, he can but choose the way of sin and wickedness. But by the grace of God, we choose the way of life. Again and again, God's covenant people are placed before that choice. Think, for example, of the blessing and the curse which 
are placed before the children of Israel after they have just entered the land of Canaan, as it was announced to them from Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Or think of the choice before which Joshua places the people. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. Joshua himself beautifully expressed his choice in the familiar words, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Understand that this has nothing to do with the Armenian idea of man's choosing. The natural man supposedly make a a decision for Christ or man of himself accepting a supposed offer of salvation. That we repudiate. By nature, man's only choice is the service of sin and the devil, for he's in the bondage of sin and death. But a choice is nothing foreign in Scripture. And as God's covenant people in the midst of this world, we must always make a definite choice. We must make a conscious choice between the dictates of our old nature, that old man of sin, and that of our regenerated heart. And that's the reality, the struggle of the Christian life, the battle of faith that we face each day. The choice between the kingdom of God and the pleasures of the world, the choice between Satan and Christ, the choice between the reproach of Christ and the treasures of Egypt. With regard to Moses, the proper choice can be made only by grace, through faith, which God implants in the hearts of his people. From a natural and carnal point of view, the choice of Moses is very strange, and in fact, we would say extremely foolish. On the one hand, he could consent to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Connected with that, honor, glory, riches, pleasures, position of power, all that the mighty kingdom of Egypt could offer. You have that on one side. What about the other side? Affliction, suffering, reproach, shame, dishonor, according to the world. Yet Moses refused the former, chose the latter. Beloved, the same choice is and must principally be made by all the people of God from the beginning of the world. Principally, this must be the choice made by you and me. In a wonderful way, God leads us as young people to the point where we make public confession of faith. Marvelous choice directed by the Spirit. 
It's the choice of the fathers of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The choice to refuse all that this world could offer. Instead, to suffer affliction with the people of God as pilgrims and strangers in the land. Bearing the reproach of Christ. God's people after Moses in the old dispensation made that choice. And of course, principally, that was the choice of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was offered all the kingdoms of this world, provided he would but bow and worship the evil one. Christ principally suffered all the reproach which could possibly be heaped upon him. And after Christ, it's the same story. Always, it's the same choice from the saints in the early church unto the very end of time until the day when Antichrist shall come and when we will not be able to buy or sell unless we choose for the mark of the beast. The same choice to be made and that choice you and I must make too. How is it possible? text in Hebrews 11 says simply by faith never from a natural point of view can the proper choice ever be made but only through the power of faith by faith Moses made that choice faith which is the evidence of things unseen it lays hold upon the recompense of the reward But make no mistake, such a choice means suffering, affliction, persecution. I'd like you to turn with me to another passage. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, this time in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. This is following the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. It's evident. These verses are not describing the citizens of the kingdom themselves. Their characteristics as was the case with the Beatitudes. This speaks now not of a characteristic of the Christian, but of the result of the characteristics which are seen in the child of God. These verses do not identify as such the citizens, but call attention to their suffering and affliction because of their heavenly citizenship. The citizen of the kingdom is going to be persecuted for righteousness sake 
Make no mistake. If one is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, he may expect that his lot here below will be one of suffering. To a greater or to a lesser extent, throughout all the ages, also of this new dispensation, the lot of God's people is one of suffering. Jesus told us that the world would hate us. He made it perfectly clear, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And the word of God throughout shows that this is true. Always citizens of the kingdom can expect persecution for righteousness sake. And so in these verses, Jesus speaks a word of comfort and cheer to those who, because they are his peculiar people and possession, are persecuted and must endure reproach and scorn and derision tells us that such suffering is cause for exceeding great joy. Remember that. We're inclined to think that persecution would be the cause for sorrow and discouragement, even despair. No. Persecution is cause, reason for comfort and encouragement. Comfort because one sees in persecution an indication that he is a pilgrim here below with no abiding place on the earth and encouragement because he knows that he is persecuted because of his tie, his union to Jesus Christ. Those persecuted for righteousness sake are happy blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven but the word of God stands as Paul puts it in 2nd Timothy 3 verse 12 yea and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution Sometimes we might wonder why we don't suffer more than we do. You can look at that question from various viewpoints. Certainly the devil uses other means to attack the church. False doctrine. Wealth and pleasure of the world and so on very successful using those means. But it's not the case, certainly, that it's because the world has become more Christian. Generally speaking, it's partly because Christians have become more worldly. If we're not being persecuted, if we experience no suffering for Christ's sake at all, it is important that we examine ourselves. Are we living godly in Christ Jesus? Or are we conforming to the world, 
the inspired Apostle Paul, as he wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, knew what he was talking about. Speaking from his own experience, he had endured all manner of suffering and persecution and affliction, all because by the grace of God he had lived godly in Christ Jesus. He was a faithful apostle and missionary preaching and teaching the gospel of Christ. His doctrine was the doctrine of the word of God. And that doctrine was reflected also in his manner of life. That Paul belonged to Christ could be seen in all his preaching and teaching and living. It was manifest in his long-suffering, in his love, in his patience with the people of God. Precisely for that reason, he experienced much tribulation. And he warns that it's only going to get worse, worse and worse. In the last days, perilous times shall come. It's one of the signs of the times. A sign of the imminent coming of Jesus Christ and of the end of the world will be a future great tribulation. And the people who will endure suffering in the great tribulation will be believers, the true and faithful members of the church of Christ, the elect, according to Matthew 24, for the elect's sake, that those days would be shortened. They show themselves in the world as those who testify of Jesus Christ and strive to keep the commandments of God. Scripture doesn't comfort the faithful church, the child of God, by promising us that We're not going to have to go through distress or suffering, persecution. What the Lord said to the early Christian church at Smyrna in the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor, also holds for the church today, even to the end of the ages. Christ told that congregation that persecution was impending. It would be instigated by the devil himself. It would be severe. Believers would be imprisoned and some would die. Ye shall have tribulation. Their consolation was not that they would escape that suffering, but that the sovereign Christ is Lord also of persecution. And he rewards his people with heaven's life and glory when they faithfully endure tribulation. And the word of Christ to the church in the midst of this world, then and now, is the announcement that she will have tribulation. And the solemn call to her to be faithful in that suffering, even unto death. Well, it's not at all strange that the church passes through times of persecution and ultimately that final great tribulation at the end of the ages. As we've noted, God's people have suffered 
persecution for Christ's sake all through the ages. We see that with regard to Moses. Hebrews 11 continues with a description of the tribulation of the Old Testament believers speaking of mockings and scourgings, of bonds and imprisonment. They were destitute, afflicted, tormented. It's the same regarding the church of the new dispensation. Jesus describes the lot of the church in this world in John 16, verse 33. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Paul preached to the newly established churches that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. That's Acts 14, verse 22. The great tribulation of the church at the end will not be a new thing, but its chief exceptional characteristic will be its severity, its greatness. Indeed, although we know that we, our children, grandchildren, if the Lord tarries, will suffer, we ought not be terrified. The little flock of Christ is comforted by the assurance that the great shepherd will be with her. In the deepest depths of the valley of the shadow of death, we trust in the sovereign grace of God in Christ to keep us faithful in the hour of trial. And all the while we have our hope surely, very securely fixed on Christ, Christ's return, the life and glory we will enjoy forever. When the great tribulation comes upon the church, we will know that our redemption is at hand. But it's important that we now live in the awareness of coming persecution and its severity. And we must be aware that it's already increasing. Also here in North America, Canada and the United States. We see it from various perspectives. We can think of the LGBTQ agenda. can think of what frequently happens when a conservative Christian is scheduled to speak at a university. Often their very lives are threatened. But suffering and persecution must not fall on us unexpectedly. We have to be prepared. And the practical purpose of the Holy Spirit in speaking of suffering, affliction, persecution is that we may prepare ourselves 
must expect that tribulation and watch for it. Removing all our hopes from the things earthly. That implies a spiritual separation from the world. Different priorities, different goals, different hopes. And yet our sinful inclination is to conform. To fit in. To succeed in this world. To be popular. We're inclined to seek the things below. Must examine ourselves. Are our treasures here below? Be not deceived. This world passeth away. And the lust thereof. Must not be foolish and live as though tribulation will never come. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent manifests itself throughout history as affliction of those who bear the reproach of Christ. That was the reproach that Moses chose by faith. That affliction he bore. But to bear the reproach of Christ, to be partaker of his afflictions, also means to be partaker of the reward of Christ. He looked for that recompense of the reward, which is heavenly glory and perfection and eternity. Moses looked to that reward. He did so knowing that the way to that reward was the bearing of the reproach of Christ, enduring the afflictions with the people of God. For the one is impossible without the other. That was true for Christ who received the mediator's reward only in that deep way of his suffering and the accursed death of the cross. And that's true for us as God's people as well. But that reward is sure for us. For Christ, our head has gone before. And we, members of his body, will surely follow. All of this Moses understood, though by promise, No wonder then that he looked away from Egypt and all its treasures. He looked unto the reward of God's promise. He looked past the perishing greatness of Egypt and saw in the distance that eternal city that has foundations, the heavenly Canaan. He saw the payment of the reward, not in terms of Egypt's treasures but in terms of the heavenly realities and he knew that that payment was his not because of what he did not because of his choice for the reward is never of merit but always and only by grace and that reward was merited by Christ in his atoning death in the power of his resurrection. And because Moses by faith was united with Christ, that reward 
but also be his. So it comes down to a very simple matter. Moses chose by faith. He could not, didn't make that choice of himself. Had he done so, he would have made the wrong choice. According to the flesh, he would have looked to the treasures and pleasures of Egypt. But he had been given the gift of faith. And by that faith, he saw things in their proper perspective. With the single eye, spiritually, he weighed and esteemed the alternatives and saw by faith that the one did not begin to compare with the other. By faith, he made the choice of the child of God and looked to the things unseen and hoped for. Applies, applies directly to us today. The choice is always essentially the same. Always the two alternatives, light and darkness, the pleasures and treasures of the world and the heavenly realities of faith. That's antithetical. No man can serve two masters. To take the one means to reject the other. And always, we as God's people are confronted with it, day by day, moment by moment. Differences in form, in time, in circumstances, but the real choice is really always the same. The ple- treasures of Egypt or the reproach of Christ. It's not easy. It's the struggle, the battle of faith. It's an impossible choice to make rightly according to our human nature. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life are very powerful, very appealing. But by faith, we choose rightly. With the eye of faith, we are able to Look away from the sinful pleasures of this present world and look to the unseen realities of heaven. We look for the payment of the reward. We know that the reward is ours in Christ, already in principle and presently in heavenly perfection. Let us then take heed more and more to the word of God. Let us be diligent, fervent in prayer to God for his Holy Spirit and grace. Let us strive to walk in holiness and godliness with our lamps burning brightly, longing for Christ, our bridegroom, to make his appearance Let us look for the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And let us not be afraid regarding the sufferings, the afflictions, the persecutions that we may encounter along our life's pathway. Let us not fear even that great tribulation. Tribulation 
What a day of grace that will be. The saints who stand in that day will have an experience of the grace of God as never before. What a privilege would be to stand for Christ and to stand with Christ in that day. So may our prayer ever be, Come, Lord Jesus, yea, come quickly. And I thank you for your attention.